The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Craig LaHoulier is known for many things in the tomato world. Some know him as the North Carolina Tomato Man. Some know him as the fellow who named the very popular heirloom tomato Cherokee Purple. To others, he is the author of two books, Epic Tomatoes and Growing Vegetables in Straw Bales. Craig is the co-host of Tomato Palooza and a co-leader of the Dwarf Tomato Breeding Project. Around town, in Henderson or Raleigh, North Carolina, you may know him as just the odd person with a garden where his driveway used to be. Craig proclaims to be a tomato nut with a website, a blog, a newsletter, and a huge collection of tomatoes, peppers, and eggplant. In reality, Craig LaHillier pursues with a passion heirloom tomatoes to help keep them relevant. I'm excited to bring you this episode, 57, Growing Epic Tomatoes with Craig LaHillier. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Craig, we live in a world of over 10,000 different varieties of tomatoes. How do you go about selecting the right variety to grow? Just 10,000? Oh, come on, there's got to be more than that. (laughs) So I've grown about four or 5,000 of them myself in my 40 years of gardening. And that is an absolutely great question because I think the challenge for each tomato-loving gardener each season is deciding what to put in their yard. Even before that, it's what do they buy from seedlings or if they're seed starters, which seeds do they purchase? But we'll stick to varieties. And I think some of the important things to keep in mind are the tomato grower knowing what kind of things they like flavor-wise. Do they like tomatoes that are mild or sweet? Do they taste like fruit? Are they really intense? Do they like that acidic twang? Experienced gardeners will have developed some experience through previous crops of what they like to eat, and they can either go for something different or they can try to find more in the same vein. Always good to find a tomato expert or two just to get a sense of what they like. There's no no shortage of opinions on the internet, of course. You get into things like, what do they want to use those tomatoes for? Tomatoes come in different sizes and different shapes, and the interior structure of some is really meaty with practically no seeds. Some of them are just, the seeds are in small cavities spread throughout. So do they want to slice them, hold lots of tomato tastings? Do they want to stick them on a skewer and put them on a grill or toss them into salads or into omelets or on pizzas? Do they want to can? Do they want to freeze? Things like that. Then you get into what I find some of the interesting aesthetic characteristics, such as the colors that are available. Through my many years of selling plants in Raleigh, I got to help lots of gardeners expand their horizons. So when they came to me 
well, you know, my family only likes red tomatoes. Okay, here's a few really good red varieties, but I'll tell you what, I will give you a green one. I will give you a white one. I will give you a pink one and a purple one. Within three to five years, they're coming in for the Whitman sampler. Uh, I'll take one of every color. Gardening is a way to build community and passion for doing something that's bigger than yourselves and inviting neighbors and friends and relatives into your garden nieces, nephews, your children, and nabbing their interest by growing tomatoes that have stories behind them. You can tell them about how Cherokee Purple came to be, or what's this Lillian's Yellow Heirloom? Is there a story behind that? The garden is a living museum. It's a place to tell stories. It's a place to have good food and discussions and arguments about what tomato is better, or which one you never grow and put on your plate again. Those are the aesthetic thoughts about what to grow, but then you also need to know your space. Are you going to grow in containers? You may want to be limited to more short-growing or dwarf-growing varieties because taller ones are hard to handle, depending on where you're growing them. How many hours of sun do you get, which can dictate the size of fruit that you're aiming for? How hot and how humid is it likely to be, which also could indicate what tomato size that you're aiming for, as well as how you space them. Because in hot, humid areas, if you have them spaced too close, you ask a simple question. And as you just found out with tomatoes, there's no short answer. But it's all worth poking into because it's all really important information that can help a gardener succeed. How does location play into that? It's a great question. There's two ways to look at this. The first of which is, if you've got a nice sunny backyard, what is the area of that yard that gets the most hours of direct sun? Now, that doesn't mean you have to limit your tomatoes to that area. But if you want to grow the largest fruited varieties, the, the mortgage lifters and the brandy wines and the tomatoes that you can brag about, they come in at a pound or a pound and a half. The more sun, the better that you'll find the performance of the larger fruited varieties in terms of yield. If you starve them of sun, you'll get these enormous plants that are reaching for the sky, but you'll be very disappointed in yield. The good news is if you have spaces in the yard with only a few hours of sun, you can still grow some absolutely delicious tomatoes because the smaller cherry-sized up to golf ball-sized varieties are far less fussy in terms of hours of sun. That's how you can kind of titrate that area in your yard, looking at the sun exposure to the varieties you might want to grow or even where you want to place the garden. The next thing we look at is thinking about, are you going to dig into that soil and put a garden into the ground? That leads to assessment of what you're digging into. What is the drainage like? In our case, in our yard, we have a septic system back there. So I'm not going to put a garden in the ground in my yard, but I am going to use straw bales and containers and grow a garden on top or erect raised beds where your growing surface is maybe a foot or a foot and a half above the soil. And when the roots of things like annuals, like tomatoes go in, they're not going to upset your septic system. The good news about this is tomatoes can be grown equally well in raised beds, in straw bales, in containers, or traditionally dug into the ground. You just need to know what it is that you're digging into. The other important parameter is how much tomatoes hate wet feet. If you dig into your soil, you've got lots of sun. This is where you want your garden, but you dig a hole and it rains and it takes days for the water to drain out of that hole. That means you have to do something to that location. You have to work in compost. You have to loosen that soil up or get under the surface to where the rocks and the clay are that are preventing that water to drain out of the hole. Otherwise, when you plant your tomato garden, they'll do okay for a while until all of a sudden it rains and their roots are sitting in a bowl of water and then they wilt and they pop 
possibly die. If you've got sun in your yard, you have no limitations at all because you have all kinds of tools in the gardener's tool belt to help you put a really great tomato garden in that prime sunny location. Now, if anybody can grow the perfect tomato year in and year out, it has to be you. (laughs) Does that happen all the time? No. One of the great things about gardening is people come to the house for plants or I'll chat with them on the phone and they're like, so you must have perfect garden. You must have great success every year. And I'll say, well, you've got these really interesting, irritating variables called weather, disease, pests, and it's best laid plans. Over the course of any 10-year period, I may have two just outrageously spectacular gardens. Everything I touch just turns to a, a perfectly ripe, delicious tomato. Maybe three out of those 10 years, it'll be disaster out of disaster. It will be a, a solid week of 95-degree humid weather, which brings on disease and blossom end rot. You'll have drought. You'll have ripping horizontal wind rainstorms that come in and blow your plants over. Then maybe five out of the 10 years, you've got a pretty good compromise between it not being the best garden you've ever had, but not being a true disaster. So you eat well from it. You can do some canning from it. And the best thing, Craig, you learn things because I'm one of those people that firmly believe gardeners learn best when they screw something up or something goes wrong, because then you have the opportunity to figure out, well, why did it go wrong? Then I'll do something a little different next year. Like Einstein said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. You often do have to change some of your techniques to continue to refine towards better and better gardens. Even given that, there are going to be elements of weather and pests and bugs and critters and diseases that will get in and maybe make your best laid plans not quite what you expect. What did you learn last year that you're going to apply to your garden this year? Last year, I learned that Hendersonville, North Carolina can be an incredibly great place to grow tomatoes because we had one day of 90 degrees and everything else was roughly between 78 and 88 degrees. What I learned is when you plant 109 tomato plants, the weather is optimal and you really try to follow everything that you wrote about in your book and you tell people because you're in the process of doing this really cool tomato course with Joe So you want everything to come out really, really well. I learned you can have too much success. We had about a month and a month and a half of picking 50 to 75 pounds of tomatoes. It intimidated us to the point of fear of looking at what was on the vine. (laughs) Because it's like, what am I going to do with these things? We handled it, gave a lot away. We canned, we cooked, we ate until we couldn't eat anymore. This year's garden is going to contain about maybe 45 or 50 plants, less than half of last year. If I do a good job and can keep up with everything and treat those plants well, I will have plenty to do everything that I need to do with. So that's one big thing that I learned is you can overplant. I think the second thing is if you do take the time to limit the number of suckers on your plant to top the plants when they get to the top of the stake, you can keep the plants. And I'm a vertical planter. I, I grow a lot of indeterminate, which are the tallest growing varieties. And I use eight foot stakes and I tie the plants to the stakes. You can let it get beyond you and you can become intimidated about taking the tops of those plants off when they reach the tops of the stakes. Then they start drooping over and you get your inevitable rains or thunderstorms or just the weight of the plant. You end up with a pickup stick effect in your garden. 
when those plants are laying all over each other, it's a perfect highway for diseases to spread plant to plant and for critters to get underneath the plants, rabbits and slugs and things and eat your tomatoes that you can't find because they're laying all over each other. Sizing your garden to the number of plants and the layout that you think that you're going to have the time to take care of in a disciplined manner, taking care of means, regular watering, regular feeding, regular tying and suckering, careful examination of the plants so that you can find the critters before they do damage the stink bugs and the hornworms. And you can remove the very beginnings of the inevitable fungal diseases like early blight and septoria leaf spot. Just when there's a few spots on lower leaves, you can get those off the plants in a disciplined basis. You'll have a very successful garden that will last through the season and give you the least number of problems adequate sizing, good attention. And I did all of these things last year and really got to appreciate how well they can work for you. You're gearing back your garden this year to 45 plants. What varieties are you growing and why? Oh, what a great question, because really I had to spend days and days thinking of this. So I'm a former chemist, meaning I've got this scientific approach to gardening. That's part of my brain. I love the colors and I love the flavors and I love the mysteries. I I don't always want to know what it is that I'm going to be harvesting out there. So I make sure that I save a lot of spaces for things that are going to surprise me when I harvest them. And I'm still deeply involved in the Dwarf Tomato Breeding Project, which has been ongoing since 2005. I've got some examples of those that are growing out there. A few years ago, I decided I needed to find out if I create hybrids between some of my favorite heirlooms, will the hybrids be as delicious as each of the heirlooms that I started with? want to grow some of the following generations of those. And those are the ones that would be total mysteries. I won't know what color they are. I'm probably going to have two-thirds project-related material split between the Dwarf Project and growing out some of the hybrids that I created. I am going to have spaces for family heirlooms that people have sent me over the last year. I think one of the true delights of being involved in heirlooms and in people knowing who I am and what I do is that there are families that have had wonderful tomatoes in their family that have been brought over from Europe or have been on farms for a century, and they've grown them. They haven't known what to do about that. How do you ensure that these are going to live forever and that other people are going to be able to grow them? Two years ago, I did four of them. Last year, I did four, and this year, I'll do another four. These wonderful people have entrusted their family heirloom variety to me to grow it and feed back to them And I tell them the next step in this is to find a seed company that will carry this because the best way to keep a living thing alive is to keep growing it. I've been able to get almost a dozen family heirlooms now primarily into the Victory Seed Company catalog and they tell the full story. Often the person who donates the seed is so excited about this, they'll buy packets and include them in Christmas cards to family members. It just makes it really special for them, which makes it really special for me. There'll be some of those. And I always have to leave about maybe a half a dozen spaces for my favorite eating varieties. Because if out of 45 or 47 plants or whatever, the majority of these are going to be experiments and unknowns, it could be that some of them are not going to be all that wonderful to eat. That's fine. Cherokee purple and Cherokee green and Cherokee chocolate and Polish and Lucky Cross, things that have proven through the 20 or 30 or 40 years I've grown them to be consistent, to be consistently delicious, 
And those are the tomatoes that actually I get excited about each year, revisiting them with each garden. That's pretty much how I define what I want to grow in my garden is to have it be some mystery, something new, and something that's reliable and I know is going to give my wife Susan and I great pleasure to harvest and eat. Now, you talked about stories or family stories with these seeds. Cherokee Purple is one of those varieties that came in like that. Can you tell us the story behind Cherokee Purple? Yeah, and thanks for asking that because in a way, just the decision of Mr. Green to send me Cherokee Purple in 1990 and the decision after that of me to name it and then send it to probably exactly the right seed company at the time and also offer it through the Seed Savers Exchange probably in a way led to me being asked to write Epic Tomatoes and then the career essentially that I've managed to put together of speaking to garden groups around the country and doing my blogging and stuff. Cherokee Purple is probably one of the causes of that. The story with me started in 1990 when I was living in Pennsylvania of receiving the packet of seeds. I dug a little deeper, but I didn't dig deep enough. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But apparently uh, a woman in Rutledge, Tennessee, Jean Greenlee, met a fellow named John D. Green at an event in Sevierville, Tennessee. I suppose they must have taught gardening. She shared a sample of this unnamed purple tomato that Jean Greenlee's father or grandfather, I think it was grandfather, obtained from the Cherokee Nation in the Rutledge, Tennessee area. Rutledge and Sevierville are both near the North Carolina-Tennessee border had no name as far as Ms. Greenlee knew and as far as Mr. Green knew. He thought of this tomato as something quite special and the color is quite unique. He and I corresponded through some of the early seed swap chats that we did through some of the gardening magazines and Organic Gardening and Gardens for All, otherwise known as National Gardening Association, were two of those magazines that held seed swaps. Mr. Green saw my name listed in the Seed Savers Exchange, and one day I got this packet of seeds. The letter that accompanied it is actually was Xeroxed and reproduced, and it's in the back part of my book, Epic Tomatoes. The letter essentially said, here's a purple tomato that dates back about 100 years, came from the Cherokee Nation, hope you like it. Very interesting conundrum to be put in because at the time I was just at the beginning of my seed collecting. I joined the Seed Savers Exchange in 1986, and it was four years later that I received seeds of this. Mostly what I had been doing up until then is just looking through the Seed Saver yearbook and familiarizing myself with lots of different tomato varieties. When I started gardening in 1981, I was the typical better boy grower. Go to the local gardener, so you get your six-pack of better boys, put them in, harvest really delicious tomatoes. I got bored with that and joined the Seed Savers Exchange to expand my horizons and get into some of these stories. Grew the tomato in my garden in 1990 in Pennsylvania. Had never seen a color in that tomato like that before. It was truly verging on purple. Some people call it a dusky rose color. The reason it has that color is because upon ripening, it retains some chlorophyll. And the green of the chlorophyll playing against the crimson color gives it that deep hue. I told my wife, Sue, man, this is a beautiful tomato. Let's eat some and see if we like it. Boy, do we hope we like it. We slice some. We really, really liked it. Now, interestingly, Cherokee Purple does better in North Carolina, and that's really not surprising when you think that Sevierville, Tennessee, on the same latitude as where I started growing it in Raleigh, North Carolina, Hendersonville, North Carolina, it seems to be regionally adapted to this area. So you've got this tomato, you save lots of seeds, you've got a story, it has no name. 
And I thought, well, people need to grow this tomato because they're going to love it. So I picked a seed company, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, which is in Virginia. And I had a friend there, Jeff McCormick, who managed it. I sent him some seed and we chatted on the phone and I said, Jeff, I'm going to send you a really interesting tomato. Jeff grew it. We had a phone call and he said, that's a fine tasting tomato. Deuce is really nice. The color is beautiful, but the color is also kind of unsettling, kind of weird. That tomato looks like what happens to your thigh if you bump into the corner of a table. It looks like a leg bruise. I'm not sure people are going to want to grow and eat that tomato because, you know, um, most Americans seem to like their tomatoes red, like they find at the grocery store. Jeff said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to carry it in my 1993 seed catalog with a caveat, only for the adventurous. And I actually kept that catalog and I found it a few months ago and I turned to the page and there it was, introduced by Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, 1993, only for the adventurous Cherokee Purple, and he told the story. I find it kind of magical and somewhat staggering that here we are in 2022, 32 years later, and that tomato, I can probably find it being sold at farmer's markets anywhere in the country, if not in many countries of the world, just because the Cherokee Nation shared it with Miss Greenlee's grandfather, and he shared it with her. She shared it with Mr. Green. He sent it to me. I shared it with Jeff. He listed it in his catalog. What an incredible chain of events that if any one of those links were snipped, we wouldn't probably have Cherokee Purple to grow today. I love the story because it also, to me, depicts the fragility of pretty much any heirloom variety that has had to survive being handed down through generations, person to person to person. Any given heirloom variety could have died out at any point. The last thing I'll say about Cherokee Purple is some thoughts that I've been having about the naming of that tomato and the context that I probably should have made early on. Collecting heirlooms and the excitement and the desire to share this with people, I should have thought of contacting representatives of the Cherokee Nation and asking about this tomato and if they knew of it, how they felt about it being named and it being out there. This is something I think lots of us who are involved in seed saving are becoming much more aware of in terms of being really sensitive and aware of what a lot of these heirlooms are named and the type of names we give them. That's a whole big topic we don't need to open right now. It is important to note that there's a lot of thought that's being put into that topic. Just from one tomato, an awful lot of things to think about, right? Right, right. You mentioned Cherokee white. It seemed like several different colors you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Tomatoes can surprise. Sometimes the surprises with tomatoes come from the fact that bees will buzz a garden and they will deposit pollen from variety X onto variety Z. And if you save seeds from variety Z and grow it out and it's not what you expect, it's because the bees have engineered a cross for you. From that point on, you have a project or a mystery to solve. Every now and then, it seems tomato genetics can also mutate, maybe just a color gene or some other gene. And you've just got to be an observant gardener that's lucky enough to be there to find it or when it happens. Apparently what happened is I grew Cherokee Purple in my garden in 1995 from seed that I had saved in 1991. And one of the eight plants that I had when they ripened the fruit, instead of coming out that dusky, rosy, purplish color, it was more of dipped in Bosco chocolate syrup. It was truly a brick red leaning to brown coloration. Turns out it was because the skin color of Cherokee Purple is clear. This variant that I found, the skin color was yellow. 
Thinking it may have been the bees that were up to something, I saved seeds from it. The things I grew from it continued to be chocolate. That was the birth of Cherokee chocolate, which I assume was due to me being lucky to grow a seed that the skin color underwent a mutation from clear to yellow, which allowed that Cherokee chocolate to form. Some years after that, someone who had grown Cherokee chocolate sent me some seed. I grew a whole bunch of his plants, and I think nine out of 10 of them were chocolate. One of them, plant was loaded with tomatoes. They started rotting and dropping off the plant. They were still green. Something really interesting is up here. I went over and harvested one of the tomatoes that hadn't rotted yet, cut it open. The flesh was bright green, but it was soft and succulent, and it tasted just like Cherokee purple. It had the same yellow skin color of Cherokee chocolate, but the flesh had flipped from crimson to green. Save seeds from it, always came out green, and that was the birth of Cherokee green. So it looked like I was lucky enough to find a flesh color mutation from Cherokee chocolate to green. If anything to that point hadn't convinced me that this is something that I was meant to do, dabble in tomatoes, get seeds from people and help distribute them, find weird things happening in my garden, I was kind of like, okay, I give up. I'm going to be the tomato dude. I'm going to grow lots of tomatoes and help spread the word. And Cherokee purple, Cherokee chocolate, and Cherokee green are actually three of the varieties that I love. They are very much the same, the three of them, in terms of flavor and growth habit and yield. But what they give you is that deliciousness in three different colors. People who want to put lots of different colors on their table, caprese salads with overlapping colored tomatoes, or make a green tomato sauce, got that delicious set of tomatoes to be really flexible with. We eat with our eyes, we human beings. We can really have a lot of fun with meals if we fiddle with people's expectations. One of the more fun things that Joe Lample and I did last year when we were filming our course is we did our very first blind tasting. He and I have 80 years combined gardening experience. We had never blind tasted tomatoes before. Had about eight or 10 varieties ripe at the time, and my wife cut them up and labeled them. What we tasted and what we reported back was very, very different from what we expected going in, our results were very different from each other's. When we're choosing tomatoes, we can't overstate the fact that we have expectations. When we look at a tomato, we think of what it's going to taste like before we even taste it. And if we do that blindfolded, we would really, really surprise ourselves and find out how much that visual impact makes on what we think our palate senses. Let's take a short break here to let you know how you may learn and ask any tomato question you can think of on a weekly live session with Craig LaHuger and Joe Lample. They'll be growing their own tomatoes right along with you, celebrating your successes and discovering solutions to this season's challenges. Check it out at joegardner.com slash tomato success. The early enrollment period ends soon. So go to joegardner.com slash tomato success so you can grow and enjoy epic tomatoes this season. Now back to the visual impact. I experience that every day in the grocery store when I go in there and they have these beautiful clusters of red tomatoes there. It's flashbacks to when you were a kid and you had that perfect tomato sandwich, but I'm always disappointed in that. Why does that happen? This is a really interesting conversation as well. All conversations about this type of stuff are interesting, right? Yeah. The tomato is quite a perishable fruit. What has happened in the whole grocery establishment and Americans' expectations of what we're going to find, or maybe it's everyone's expectations, we know that strawberries and raspberries and we know blueberries and melons and tomatoes are very perishable. And we know that they each have seasons 
However, we still think that when we walk into the produce section of a grocery store, there are going to be everything that we want 365 days a year. And when we bring it home, it's going to taste delicious. And of course, as you just mentioned, that will lead to frequent disappointments because a lot of what ends up in a grocery store has to have some genetic attributes built in. This isn't GMOs. This is traditional plant breeding. Tomatoes have been bred to be particularly firm. In many cases, they've been bred that they start ripening from the inside so they can be picked quite green. And in that green state, you can load them into a railroad car and then you can fill that car with ethylene gas, which is a hormone that promotes the ripening of produce. Bananas and apples will give off ethylene gas. And in fact, if somebody knocks green tomatoes that are full-sized off your plant and you want them to ripen, you just bring them in the house and stick them in a brown paper bag with a banana or an apple. And the ethylene given off by those fruits will ripen your tomato up a little bit more quickly. That tomato that was picked green and gassed, sitting stacked in a pyramid at your grocery store, and that pyramid can probably stay there that way for two weeks before the tomatoes start squishing. We know that those tomatoes can't possibly be as succulent or as delicious as the ones that we go and grow in our garden that we have to eat them within a few days or else they're going to turn to mush. That really is the main reason that we are disappointed in a lot of the produce we purchase in stores that is off-season from its natural season. It's why farm stand tomatoes and the farm stand that is located next to the farm that's growing them, those tomatoes are always going to taste better than what you buy in a place where they're not directly from that farm that's 100 feet away. What's happened to that is Sue and I have become seasonal eaters. And in fact, I won't eat a tomato in fresh state between the last one that I pick from the plant and the first one that I pick the following spring. Any tomatoes that we eat are ones that we've turned into sauce or we've canned or frozen whole. Those won't be eaten like a slicing tomato. You'll make salsa from them. You'll make sauce from them. You'll incorporate them into recipes. We're the same with strawberries. We're the same with melons. I guess that could be some element of food snobbery, perhaps, but we found lots of different ways to get the nutrition we need from produce, but being able to eat each crop only at its peak by eating other things. So right now you can get good root vegetables and, and good greens and broccoli, and cauliflower and things like that. The tomatoes go on the back burner and we just fill in our diets with other things. Bet you didn't know we were going to end up there from your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Your book, The Epic Tomatoes, came out in 2015. What was your motivation to write the book? I joined the Seed Savers Exchange in 1986, and by about 1992, I went at this like a scientist. I read voraciously. I collected old seed catalogs. I went out to Decorah and visited them at the Seed Savers Exchange and learned a lot more about different varieties and started amassing this big collection. My wife, right around the early 90s, started saying, I think you need to write a book about this. I was working my full-time job in big pharma, and I had my children. And I said, well, someday. I, I just feel like to write a book, you have to have the brain space, the time, the patience to write it. Because writing's not like, oh, I'm going to go mow the lawn today. For me, and I think for each person who writes, it's a very, very personal experience. For me, I write when I'm in the mood for writing, and that's the moment that I wish to do it. And I just couldn't have that type of spontaneity with all these other things going on. I just waited for a while. And then I got to know someone named Nikki Jabor through gardening, and she's in Nova Scotia. She's a wonderful author. During gardening season, she has a radio show. It asked me to come to a show quite a few times to talk about tomatoes. 
when she wrote her first book, she had an editor, Carlene, and worked with a publisher, Story. And Story asked her about having a tomato book in their portfolio. Nikki said, well, why don't you contact this guy, Craig, in North Carolina? I got an email from Carlene, who ended up being my editor. This was in 2012, and I was just so delighted because, number one, I know how I am about being disciplined about things. I needed kind of the sword of Damocles hanging over my head to be able to actually finish a book, a table of contents, a plan, daily targets. I wrote out a contract, and I started writing the book, essentially sitting in front of a laptop and opening my brain up because this book has been in my head for a long time. Wasn't it a challenge for me to write the book? Well, certain chapters were. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it was a relief because now I had a publisher and I had a contract and story provided photographer. They also provided an art director and a publicist. If you're going to put the effort into writing a book, and I was only going to write a book if I could make it the best book I possibly could. It's up to other people to decide whether it's a good book or not. It's up to me to decide whether it's the best that I could do. I just started pounding away at the laptop. I can touch type 120 words a minute. I could really plow through the chapters that I loved, such as history and colors and flavors. And then at the end, you leave the things that you don't quite love so much, such as the diseases and the culture part. And it's just because of the type of tomato garden that I love to do. Gardening is a broad, broad, broad topic with many little side roads in it. And some people may really get into delving into everything there is to know about pests and diseases. Other people, it's all about tomato feeding and care and watering. For me, it was the stories and the colors and the flavors and the history. It is really the essence of my approach to gardening up until about 2012 and 13. One of the really valuable things about when Joe Lample asked me to collaborate with him on the course that we put together and ran for the first time last year is a book is not a living being. It is a point in time that captures knowledge at that point in time. What an opportunity is to be able to make that book live and to bring in things that I've learned in the last 10 years, because gardeners don't just go five years in and say, okay, I'm now a gardener and stop learning. Gardening is a lifelong pursuit and you learn from every garden until the day that you're gone. I love the book. I love the fact it's out there. My wife is greatly relieved that it's out there because she had been haunting me to write it for a long, long time. And now she's haunting me to write my third book on the Dwarf Tomato Project, which is hard for me because I'm so busy gardening still and doing other things, but that's on my list to complete sometime this year. And that will be a self-publish because it's such a niche topic. It's such a unique project that I feel like the story has to be told. That sounds like something that's really needed. As we become more space challenged with our gardens, dwarf plants and smaller growing plants are really going to be popular. Take a moment and tell us about that. Sure. We started this podcast off talking about different ways to garden and the fact that if you're on a driveway or a patio or a deck and you don't have a place to bang an eight-foot stake into the ground, you may need to grow plants that are shorter. Right up until about 2004 or so, we were selling plants at the local farmer's market. And one of my most frequently asked questions was, what if you've got this really great, unique, pretty, large, delicious, but I can grow it in a container and I don't have to climb a ladder to pick it? 
There are two growth habits of plants. Indeterminants are what most people grow. There are the Cherokee purples and the brandy wines and the sun golds. In 1920, there was a gene discovered that led to what's called self-topping or determinant. The very first of that type was Cooper Special, but then Romatypes, Pritchard's, a Scarlet Topper, a Fireball, Celebrity maybe is a form of determinant, but maybe it's a little bit taller. They get to about three or four feet tall and they flower like crazy and they produce a lot of tomatoes. They're not the best flavored. Taxi is another one that I like to grow, but it's not going to be the one that you reach for first. Then in the 1850s in France, this weird plant popped up in a garden that had about a three or four foot growth habit, but on a very, very thick central stem, produced fruit right through frost. And it was called a dwarf variety. No one really did much to develop that type. There was, in the 1800s, there was golden dwarf champion and dwarf champion and dwarf stone, new big dwarf, which was a large fruited one that came out in, I think, 1906. But the breeders at the time didn't have all of these crazy colors and flavors to breed in to make these varieties as interesting as possible. On GardenWeb, which was a website garden discussion place, I met an Australian friend, Petrina, who loved to make crosses. And she and I talked about this idea. What if we take the existing dwarfs and start crossing them with some of our colorful, delicious heirlooms, and then we form a team and they grow things out and find the subsequent dwarfs in the future generations. We grow until we find color combinations and flavor combinations that will make for great new varieties. We started that in about 2005, and here we are in 2002. We've employed the talents, and when I say employed, this is altruistic. This is all volunteer. Everybody understands up front. The glory in this is creating a new variety and having it end up in some seed catalog and other people getting to grow it. The people who are going to make some income off it will be the seed companies that have the trust to carry them. We have now roughly 145 new named varieties. When I say dwarf growth, people should think about them as an indeterminate tomato and how they fruit, meaning they'll go till frost, but they grow at half the vertical rate upwards. If in your garden, your Cherokee purple is about eight feet tall by the end of your season, a corresponding dwarf variety will be about four feet tall. The variability comes in how many hours you've sun. So if you get less hours of sun, the plant will stretch a little bit more. If you get lots and lots of sun all day, it will keep the plant a little bit shorter. They have a thick central stem. The useless tomato cage, the, the four-foot wire cone-shaped cages are actually utterly useful for the dwarf varieties or a short stake. And we've got them in every color, shape, size, and flavor. My friend Mike at Victory Seeds has agreed to be the company that partners with us the most. He's kind of a hotline to our project when we have releases that are ready to go. He carries them and he just listed 10 new ones this year. We've had a thousand people roughly that have been involved in this over the 17 years we've been doing this. Doing a project like this bottom up, not publicizing it, just putting varieties out there and seeing how people like them, looking at how many other seed companies start picking them up looking for feedback uh, on the internet when you start Googling some of these varieties. It is exactly the type of altruistic collaborative project that I envisioned for this, where the project is just serving gardeners who are space challenged to try to provide them with nice alternates that will help their gardens be joyful for them. Well, that sounds like a great book coming out because that's something that seems to be the trend is we're all more space challenged as new homes are developed and different lifestyles. Yeah, it's interesting because when we started putting out our varieties, I did contact quite a few of the larger seed companies and they didn't see the coming interest in container gardening. The smaller seed companies did. 
that allowed us to give a Southern Exposure Seed Exchange or a Sand Hill or Tatiana's Tomato Vase, Heritage Seeds, Victory Seeds. It gave them something that's unique for them because the seed industry is extremely competitive. Everybody is going for the attention of a finite but thankfully growing uh, population of gardeners. I like to level the playing field. I like when every company has something unique to offer and we can spread the business around. I do think because we use this unique collaborative approach, it is a story worth telling. I've got my title for the book. I want to call it Crowd Breeding because we use the efforts of a crowd to breed new varieties. Like Epic Tomatoes, the book is in my head. I would actually like to feature some of the people who are really active in it, tell the story of the varieties, do a little bit of a primer on tomato genetics, not to put people to sleep, but to make it understandable. In the project, we're all like Gregor Mendel with his peas. We were learning about what happens when you cross a green with an orange or a white with a pink or what happens with stripes or what happens with anthocyanins, potato leaf, regular leaf, variegation. We probably could have gone to books to learn some of this, but it is more fun to be an explorer. It's more fun to get the answers in your own garden. I think we learn better better if we can actually get our hands on how this stuff works. My challenge will be to make the book as engaging in terms of telling a story as possible and not to be a dry scholarly type of a gardening text that is just more about facts and figures. This is really about people. It's about the excitement of discovery. It's about fulfilling a niche and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we'll look forward to that. You and Joe have teamed up on the Online Gardening Academy to teach a course called Growing Epic Tomatoes. With all the information out there, your book included, why should I pay for a course on growing tomatoes? Great question to ask me because as someone that came into this purely as a hobby, really never looked at it as an income stream whatsoever. It is comforting to me to be paired up with Joe because Joe really understands how to portray accurately the value of education. And Joe is an incredible teacher. When I think about this course and answering that question of why, I think about the internet and just the vast amount of information on there. That's one way to look at it. I can also say the vast amount of distorted or misinformation out there because it is a collective of people with an infinite number of agendas. And some of them are there to educate. Some of them are there to obfuscate. Some are there to monetize. And it's how do you tell which is which? And this is a a little example. So I'm going to be doing a talk to a gardening group in Oregon next week. We're going to be talking about seeds. And I wanted to get a handle on what's out there in the internet with respect to varieties that I know a lot about, but how they're being described. I put in a few different varieties and I looked at a few different seed companies. In one case, it's the right tomato description with the wrong tomato from the picture. Clearly, they have the wrong strain. It's a particular tomato that was released 30 years later from the original release, but it was a very different tomato and they have the wrong one. Another listing of that, a particular tomato with a completely distorted, incorrect history. Another seed company with a tomato that has a completely fabricated history. And there's a lot more of those than any of the other types of errors. 15 minutes on the internet, and I ended up going to bed that night appalled because to me, each tomato has its own history, and we owe it to tell that story accurately. 
that's just an example of the type of misinformation. One time I was looking and there was some advice I found. You need to take all of the leaves off your tomato plants to force all of the energy going into farming the tomato. And I thought, well, that will lead to blossom end rot and there'll be no photosynthesis to develop the flavors in that tomato. Some of these are being very cleverly pushed. I'll use that word. In a course like Joe's that he and I are collaborating on, we are actually making Epic Tomatoes, the book, come alive. And you remember I talked earlier about the fact that information was very accurate in terms of my knowledge up to about 2012, 2013. The course allows for updates and everything that I've learned since. It allows for the blending of our 80 years of combined gardening experience to identify the best of techniques for any particular gardening task, whether it be seed starting, transplanting, identification of diseases, dealing with bugs. A lot of the value in it to me is the fact that it's just about entirely video. The interaction of Joe and I pulling information out of each other that we may not even have thought to raise. Joe and I have developed this incredible friendship and that camaraderie comes through. The fact that it's online and self-paced and people can take it at any rate that they want throughout the gardening season. And finally, to me, the biggest advantage of all is they get us, meaning... For one and a half hours each week through the gardening season, there is a live a Zoom session where we will answer together, tossing them back and forth to each other, every question that everyone asks, including follow-up questions. That, to me, makes this kind of a steal in terms of ability to have access to the combined knowledge of both of us, just to share in the fun and the joy and the buzz that it creates. Last year when we embarked on this, I wasn't sure of the amount of work that I would take to put into it. It was one of the best things that I've ever done. And the joy that I received from interacting with the students and with Joe and then looking at the feedback that emerged afterwards I just can't wait to jump in and do it again this year. I'm chomping at the bit, Craig. I bet so. Y'all make a dynamic duo. And, and the good thing about the course is it's not just for this one season. You can continue every year after with you have it forever. There's a special social interaction area on a tool called Circle where everybody's there talking about all of their gardening experiences. The videos are there forever. If people missed some of those live office hours, as we call them, they're there forever. It's just amazing. It's essentially a living book that will always be updated, the latest findings. You will want to take advantage of all the benefits in Craig and Joe's Growing Epic Tomatoes course. The significantly discounted early sign-up period is now open. Go to joegardner.com slash tomato success. The early sign-up period ends very soon. So go to joegardner.com slash tomato success and check it out before it expires. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Oh, gosh. What a great question. And just so people know, one of the great things about the way that Craig is interviewing me in this podcast is I really don't know what he's going to ask. And I have the most fun when I'm put in the spot and have to be spontaneous. Two things. I'm going to say spacing and adequate watering. Spacing-wise, as an heirloom enthusiast, my goal was always to squeeze as much into the garden as I could. What I created was a turnpike for tomato disease. You've got foliage pressing against each other when you've got plant shading plants. The sun is just a wonderful disinfectant. And when you're blocking the ability of the sun to do its job, you can actually harvest as many tomatoes out of 50 plants, well-spaced and well-cared for, than you can of 200 plants that are all crammed in together. 
issues just arise. So adequate spacing. The other is learning that you can underwater plants that are grown in containers or straw bales. I know that on the internet, there are a lot of people that are saying to get the best flavor out of your tomatoes, you need to starve them a little bit. You need to hold back water a little bit and concentrate those flavors. In the ground where roots can reach down and find water, that's one situation. But we're talking about if a plant is in a container or a straw bale and the roots are filling that area, and when all the water is expended out of that area, that's that. What you'd end up with is just a wonderful crop of blossom end rot tomatoes. Because what happens is when a plant stresses out, and typically with tomatoes, when they're starting to set fruit and they're starting to get tall, it's those hot summer days and there's not enough water for the plant to avoid stress. And that stress interrupts the ability of the plant to take up the calcium that invariably is in the soil. What you end up with is a crop of tomatoes with brown or black ends on them that are fine for seed saving, but they certainly aren't particularly appetizing. So what I have been doing is watering pretty much daily in the heat of summer and feeding weekly. And this is for containers and straw bales. I have had no dilution of flavors. And in fact, I have had the best flavored tomatoes of my experience when I have been keeping the plants happy. The biggest mistake that I've made was withholding water. The biggest finding around this is learning that if you're in containers and straw bales, it is literally impossible to overwater, but it is extremely possible to underwater. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? I wish that they would take advantage of the wonderful things that are out there to grow. If they have favorites that they stick with every year, add a few things in that you may like. Go to a tomato tasting at a local farmer's market because a lot of people hold them. We used to do our tomato palooza in Raleigh where we'd have 250 people tasting 200 different tomatoes. And boy, was there a lot of palate education going on. And I think because of that event, a lot of people switched up their gardens. Make it interesting. Do some projects in it. Not everybody is going to want to do this. It's all about time constraints and what people can handle and where they are in their life. Grow some mysteries in there. Bring people into the garden and teach with it. Grow a tomato with a story and tell that story to people. I think the most important thing gardeners can do today is to grow gardeners. This is a very, very wacky time. You know, COVID has made this kind of an insane time. And I think people have been looking for ways to find peace and to find joy and to find comfort. And I have this feeling that it may be gardeners that help save the world. The ability to grow your own food, the ability to find a place to go that you can hear the birds sing and you can be with friends and, and family and loved ones get your hands dirty, get in a little better shape because you're out there sweating, learn to cook a few things you had ordinarily cooked because you're growing some things that you're not accustomed to, some different types of crops. To answer the question, it would be make the garden bigger and more interesting and get more people to join you. COVID created a lots of new gardeners. I have lots of friends in the seed industry and they were having a really hard time keeping up, which is great. One of the things I wanted to do during COVID and the reason I started all the Instagram lives was to put myself out there to answer questions because I want to create all of those new COVID gardeners into forever gardeners. I just worry that some people are going to find that, well, you know, this was a lot of work and it didn't work out for me and I got discouraged, so I'm not going to garden anymore. I, I want to try to prevent that discouragement by telling people it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to have a bad season. Don't don't bite off too much. 
Don't bite off more than you can chew. Keep it manageable and just ease your way into something that will be a lifetime pursuit and a lifetime friend for you. It will always be there. What's your earliest garden memory? My earliest garden memory is my grandfather, Walter Gibbs, lived in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. He lived on the second floor of a tenement house on Crescent Road. And in the back of the yard of the tenement owner was a field. And he got the permission to plant a big garden back there. And I don't think my mother or his wife, my grandmother, or anyone else from the family ever went back there to see what he was up to. When I was three or four years old, he would bring me back there. And I would remember looking his tuberous grown dahlias right in the eye. I would be down there where the water is dripping and could smell what it smells like when the water hits the earth. And I could smell the sweet peas climbing up the trellis and and look at the tomatoes he was growing. It cemented a love between he and I. He was cantankerous. He was not the most popular family member. He was my favorite family member and I was his favorite family member. I'm convinced it was because we shared curiosity of growing things. Think about that. He planted the seed of love of gardening in me when I was three years old. And it took until I got married to my wife in 1981. That's when that seed germinated. And we had our first garden and I've gardened ever since. That's great. Who's been your biggest influencer? It will always be my wife, who is my biggest influencer, my biggest hero. She's this incredibly talented, calm quilter and avid reader. Being able to share the ride on this earth with her for 41 years and counting, you know, it's been everything to me and it will continue to be. I want to garden until I'm 100, so I'm counting another 35 years or so. (laughs) That's great. And I bet you'll make it. Well, I hope so. I'm thinking one or both knees is going to have to be replaced sometime soon. So there's going to be some hobbling around time and I've got to decide when to do it so I don't interrupt my gardening. We're in a place where there's lots of hiking and the gardening stuff. I don't want to be flat on my back for very long. What are you doing in your garden now? So here we are. We're sitting here in February. I'm looking over at the bookcase in my office and there's a flat of germinating seeds. And I can't talk about it because it's a secret. It's people who are in Growing Epic Tomatoes will find out because I'm doing a bonus module about seed germination. I'm getting very, very close to starting my seeds. Right now, I'm planning, reading through seed catalogs, and I, and I get notebooks out. I'm pretty much settled on what I'm growing this year, so i got to make sure I have the fresh seed. I've got my seed starting material. I'm dreaming. And the other things I'm doing is I'm blogging. I think people should check out two things I'm doing on my blog because I'm kind of excited about it. I was never a very disciplined blogger, so I had to come up with two things that are going to keep me blogging regularly. Back in the early 90s, Carolyn Mayle, who sadly passed a few years ago, but she and I, our careers in heirloom tomatoes were running pretty parallel. Um, She wrote her book first, and then I wrote my book, and we each had huge tomato collections. Early 1990s, we put out a newsletter called Off the Vine. did so well. It had a circulation in the dozens. We did it ourselves. We Xeroxed and we mailed it out. And somebody a few months ago asked, whatever happened to those? And originally I thought, well, I'll collate them into a book and put it out there. But I thought, no, I don't want to do that. This is the time to give stuff away. In my blog, every week, I transcribe the whole thing into a series of Word documents. So what I'm doing 
is I'm posting it each week, article by article. And before the article that I paste in, I'm writing a little bit about it. And then afterwards, I'm writing about my impressions, having read it again for the first time in decades. Have I got any updated or new information? So that's kind of fun. And anybody who was an Off the Vine subscriber or knew that we did it or knows Carolyn and me will probably get a kick out of going back decades to see what we were thinking about heirloom tomatoes back then. And the other thing I'm doing is I've got a seed collection that's approaching 8,000 different varieties. So I'm going to take people through that collection, starting with seed number one back in 1986, 10 at a time. And I'm going to talk about why I wanted to grow it, how it did for me, and whether I ever grew it again. I think this weekend I'll be posting, might be seeds 71 through 80. Seeds 1 through 70 are also published. I put a few pictures in there, and this is like the depths of tomato geekdom and nerddom. But I figured, you know, some people may want to know what kind of decisions I use to start building my collection. And that kind of goes into my head, takes people through the process. And they may see some of their old favorites in there. I know I've already written about Better Boy and Whopper and Ultra Boy and Young's Way Ahead. I grew some of the more popular tomatoes around back in the mid-80s. Craig, tell us how people may connect with you. I'm pretty easy to reach. I love email, just nctomatoman, all one word, at gmail.com. And I try to be really, really attentive to that. If people pop me a question, they should get a response within 24 hours. I've had a blog going for quite a while now, since the release of Epic Tomatoes in 2015. And that's Craig Lahoulier, C-R-A-I-G-L-A-H-O-U-L-L-I-E-R.com. And from there, there are submenus where they can find my blog and some videos and things like that. The main way that I interact now in social networking, aside from my blog and my email, is Instagram. And I am at nctomatoman. I go live quite often. People can look at my Instagram TV channel and see me all sweaty and doing work out in the yard from years past. I post often, pretty much a couple of times a week, sometimes daily, of what's going on in the Lahulier household and in the garden. So that's how people can reach me. This has been Episode 57, Growing Epic Tomatoes with Craig Lahulier. Thank you, Craig. From one Craig to another, you're amazing. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.